But welcome. Good to see everyone. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our risen Savior who has conquered uh, sin and Satan and, and death itself and uh, who is alive uh, right now. And we look to him as our risen king. Uh, we look to him to lead us uh, into a new life uh, even today. And, and we anticipate uh, being with him with resurrected bodies in the new earth uh, over which he will reign uh, over us, and we will reign with him forever and ever. So today, please bless our meditations and bless our study as we come to your word to understand um, what it means to uh, live in your kingdom, what it means to not live in your kingdom, and uh, what we ought to be looking for as we await uh, your glorious appearing. So please bless our time together and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying uh, dominion and faith, uh, which is a summary of, of what it means to uh, live in Christ's kingdom, and we're slowly adding more and more con- content and building out this, uh, this theme. And we started out the first week talking about a narrative understanding of biblical truth. Uh, the Bible comes to us as a big story, and we're supposed to understand uh, the Bible uh, as, as a story. And so if it's a story, what, what's it mean to understand this story? Every story's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got, uh, you start someplace, you have drama, and it re- leads to a conclusion, and the conclusion uh, only makes sense in light of the drama, and the drama really only makes sense in light of uh, the conclusion that it's building towards. So what's the story? And the biblical story, writ large, the big, biggest picture possible is creation, fall, redemption. God created man as his image, uh, image bearers that we are, we are the finite impression of the infinite God. Uh, God has revealed himself and, uh, uh, through humanity, and our job, our vocation, if you will, was to be uh, kings and priests of creation. We were to rule uh, over all of creation, under God, uh, in fellowship and communion with him, and as our life. He was our life giver. He was the source of all that we had. And out of the life that we had with God and the communion that we had through Him, hanging on His every word, uh, finding all truth and knowledge and wisdom in Him, we were to then fill the entire earth as image bearers, uh, bringing everything under uh, His rule and reign as we bring it under our rule and reign, uh, exercising uh, dominion over the animals, uh, subduing all things. That was our role as priest kings. That was our holy vocation. And we talked about what that, uh, the image of God applied, if you will. What it, what's it look like to be image bearers in the world? Uh, we're, we're creatures clothed with honor and dignity. Uh, we are to rule all other creatures. Uh, any worldview that tries to make man just another animal is, is a false worldview. It's false religion. It's, it's hogwash. Don't listen to it. Humans were made to rule the world. Uh, we were made for a, a high calling, a huge vision to fill the whole earth, the entire earth. Every square inch of the earth was to be under human's dominion. And that's not how Adam and Eve were created at the beginning. They were just in one garden. And so the idea was they were going to fill the, everything with their offspring. And uh, that holy vision uh, was um, given to us as a mandate. It wasn't optional. We had the responsibility to fulfill it. And we had a responsibility to, to exercise that dominion, again, relying upon God uh, in total uh, submission to him. We had responsibility. We were to do that as man and woman together, not just man by himself. It's not just rugged cowboy roaming the Wild West on a horse, just uh, you know, subduing creation all by his lonesome, uh, sitting around a campfire at night and uh, you know, smoking his tobacco and polishing his boots all by himself. No, it was man and woman together. Uh, raising families, having more families, um, building culture from the ground up. We were to do that together. And then we were to do that, but from a home base. Eden was the home base. It was the place where man dwelt with God. It was fully explored territory. Uh, It was a place of complete safety, no unknowns. Out of that place, they could go into unexplored territory, bring it under submission uh, to 
God's image and then come back and rest and, and, it, and that home would eventually expand and fill the whole earth. But there was, there was a place from which this went forward and that, that was home, that was Eden. Then we had the fall, what we talked about last week, had the fall. Mankind, uh, by listening to the creation, the serpent, Satan, instead of listening to God, instead of having dominion over the creatures, they let the creatures have dominion over them by letting them tell Adam and Eve what to do, uh, and rejecting God as the source of all truth and life, they disobeyed him by eating the fruit. Everything got flipped on its head. And uh, instead of uh, the consequences for our choosing, <coughs> rejecting our vocation, if you will, as, as kings and priests, and instead, I mean, you think about what Adam and Eve were doing. They were listening to the serpent. They were not listening to God. They were forfeiting their divine right and their divine command. They, they were inverting the whole structure. They were putting off what God called them to do and, and embracing a, a perverted narrative uh, from the mouth of the serpent. And that led them into sin. That led them into this cursed state of instead of being a, a creature filled with honor and dignity, they, they felt shame. They wanted to hide themselves. They wanted to run away from God's presence and, and cover up their nakedness. Uh, they were ashamed. They were powerless. Instead of having the power and the ability to fulfill their potential, and fill the earth, they were, they were cursed. And the thorns and thistles were to come up from the ground instead of the fruit of their labor. Uh, women who had this high calling to have children and to be fruitful and multiply, that very process would be cursed, would become extremely painful. So every part of building, every part of expanding that humans were to engage in, and represented by agriculture and tilling the earth and bearing fruit, and represented by having children, that was all cursed, and it was, it was going to be very, very difficult. Instead of fulfilling our responsibility, we fail, and we have guilt. We, don't, we anticipate punishment. We live in dread of the consequences of what's going to happen because we've rejected our responsibility. Instead of communion with God and one another, we are alienated from God, and we're alienated from one another. Instead of man and woman living together as one flesh, as uh, we talked last week about uh, the woman being brought as a helpmeet who could be uh, next to and in front of man and look at him, and they could look at each other and have a, 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 an awareness of themselves that they could not have just by being alone. This, this idea of communion as, as uh, leading to oneness, leading to fruitfulness, this whole dynamic was disrupted. And all you have is, is essentially you know, strife and competition within the marriage relationship where often, more often than not, just to keep society functioning, we all just revert to the raw formalities of the relationship. I think this is what's meant by when God tells Eve, um, your desire will be against your husband and he will rule over you. Uh, husbands... Uh, being the head of the household and, and um, head of the wife, as Paul says in the New Testament, is not part of the curse, right? Male headship's not a cursed thing in and of itself. What's being communicated in Genesis 3 is the relationship will often just revert to the raw formalities of the relationship and little more, right? You're, you're just going to be ruled by your husband. You're not going to enjoy the blessings of this, of this union. It's just raw authority that you have to look forward to because there's so much conflict. That's what's, that's what's being communicated. And that's true for every relationship. You think about employer, employee, slaves, and, and masters, and every relationship we've had throughout human society, more often than not, what has to happen for society just to function? You have to appeal to the raw power of the relationship. It's not how it was meant to be. It was meant to be in, in communion and harmony, but instead, it's just, it's just power struggles. And then instead of home, we're now exiled. Exile, we're outside the garden, okay? So, that's where we've been so far. Any, uh, also, this is, seems like a random footnote, but the very first week, I said something about these two lions in the Field Museum. Uh, I used it as an illustration, and... These, I said these lions were standing up really tall, 
and they were on these big displays. That was wrong. I, that was, I just want to correct the record here. This display, the Field Museum, is these two lions. One's kind of just sitting down and one's standing there. So if one of you guys Googled and like, I can't find these lions that are standing up tall and looking all intimidating, uh, I just want to, it's been bothering me. I've been meant to say that and just want to correct the record. Okay, that aside, any, any questions or comments about what we've talked about so far? Okay. Um, all right. So today we're going to talk about um, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? This is the fallen state of man. And to use an illustration to kind of set the stage of where we're going to go for the rest of this, this class, um, you know, every story you have the status quo, everybody's kind of happy, then something bad happens. And then there's kind of this, it's like you know, 30 minutes into the movie or 30 minutes into the show, uh, people are kind of thinking to themselves, now what? What do we do? And inevitably, in every movie, there's kind of like two paths emerge. Uh, so, and, and they're kind of presented as two options for the, the viewer or the reader to, to contemplate. And inevitably, it's you know, the good path versus the bad path. Um, and, but they kind of present themselves in different ways. So, uh, like, for example, um, that's a good example here. Um, Star Wars? Let's see here. I kind of use Star Wars as a good example. Uh, I'll think about how to use Star Wars. I, I'm, I'm going to think more... Um, uh, Lion King. Um, we'll come back to that. So early on in the movie, Simba's, you know, he gets held up really high, and then all of a sudden Scar appears on the scene. Um, you've already been introduced to Mufasa, but then you kind of, there's a scene where it's just Scar, and you remember the movie where he pounces on the, the mouse, and he's dangling this little mouse over his head and almost eats him, and then, and then Zazu, the bird, comes and says, you weren't at uh, Simba's... Uh, it's essentially Simba's baptism. I can't remember what they call it, but that's, it's a, you know, he's the next in line to be king of the, and they, put, they even put a little thing on his head, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mini baptism. Um, and, and what you're presented with, with Scar, is, okay, we saw the path of kingship, we've seen Mufasa in all of his glory, we've seen the, the, the successor, and now we got this Scar guy. Uh, and... What's being presented, in one sense, is an alternative path to deal with um, the problems that are going to emerge in the movie. Um, another example is Aladdin. Uh, you have the Sultan, and then you have Aladdin, this orphan uh, street beggar, and but then you have this guy Jafar, who's this sorcerer, kind of a... Um, an evil guy, and again, he's presented as kind of this alternative path that, of whatever um, Aladdin's going to walk. And we have something very similar in the Bible, and really all these stories that we're talking about are just echoes, I think, of the human imagination, because all of us are, are rooted in this story in some respect. And what I'm going to call this alternative path, uh, in light of what we've talked about so far in this class, is what I'm calling fake dominion, fake dominion, Okay. You can think of the fall as, as dominion lost. By dominion, I mean, our, again, this, this vocation of being priests and kings uh, of God as his image bearers. Um, image, dominion is just a shorthand word I'm using. You could probably pick a different word um, if the word dominion is loaded for you. Um, just pick a different word. But uh, this, this, this human vocation, that gets tarnished. Um, our, the image of God has been sullied. And we have this, this pathetic situation now. And so how, is, how are we going to respond? What, what, are, what are humans going to do? And it's really funny that, that fake dominion always, it's, it's artificial. It's not what we were created to be. But it looks something kind of like what we came from. Like there, there's, there's a hint of, well, maybe this could work. And that, if you think about a lot of the stories that we, we tell each other and grow up with, the guy who does fake dominion, is almost always um, a caricature of masculinity, uh, a mad scientist, 
or some macho guy. You know, these, this, this, it's a caricature of the true thing. Like, even Scar in, um, in Lion King, when he's got... If you get, who's seen Lion King? You guys, I'm talking about Disney's Lion King, 1994 movie. I think it's 94, 96. Um, when he's got that song with all the hyenas, like, what's the color of the volcano? You know what? It's green. Yeah, our volcanoes aren't green. Why is it green? It, fair enough. It's, it's more like a yellowish green. I'll, I'll give you that. It's like a yellowish green. And the idea is, it's like Scar's like this scientist. He's like a mad scientist. I mean, they're, they're trying to create this kind of sinister... I mean, he's got a British accent. You know, I mean, like this... He's evoking this idea of, of imitation. Um, another really silly example. Uh, uh, afternoon cartoons, Pinky and the Brain. You ever watch Pinky and the Brain? You know... What are we going to do? What are we going to do tonight, Brain? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. And he's a little mouse who's this little mad scientist who's trying to take over the world. Again, this, this idea of, and it's, it's a caricature, but it's a caricature that sticks, that, that fake dominion, a wrong response to our, our woeful situation, is a cheap imitation of, of the real thing. And so today, we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to spend a lot of time going through these verses just to see... The, the biblical images of this cheap imitation of true dominion um, that's presented for us in the Bible. And in, in the narrative structure of the Bible, this vision of fake dominion is, um, is in one sense the problem that the Messiah is coming to solve. Like, how is Messiah not just going to deal with our woeful situation, but how is he going to combat this fake dominion that's emerged? Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want to just lay it out, uh, what, what I'm going to pr- propose to you as, as this vision of fake dominion, and, and we're going to just look, go through these passages and talk about it together, and that, that'll be the class. So if you were to think of, okay, if I'm a, a person who's ashamed, but I'm not going to seek the honor that comes from God that he bestows upon me. I'm going to seek my own honor. You guys think of some words that would maybe describe that kind of... It's, it's this idea of wanting to exalt yourself, but it's not the exaltation that comes from God. You think of a word that... Might, arrogance? Yes. A shorter word. Ego? A little bit longer word. Pride. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah you're thinking the same thing. Exactly. Pride. Right. Um... And this, this is, again, fake, dominion. Like, someone who's proud, are they inherently worthy of honor? Not necessarily. No, it's, it's, it's usually self-imposed. It's you seeking something um, in your own name instead of um, uh, seeking honor that comes from God. Yes, Stephen. Pittsburgh? Free spirit or persevered? Yeah. Well, not, not quite. Not quite. This is more sinister than that. Um, so, um, pride. So, when we go through these, these verses, like, think about pride as, as a, a, a response to our woeful condition, but, but the wrong response. Um, if you're powerless, um, what might you be tempted to do... Um, Kind of in your own in your own strength to kind of build for yourself. How would you kind of describe if you're just use your biblical imagination? Kindness. kindness? No, we're kind of thinking more negative. So not kindness, but yeah. Very good. Exactly. Yeah, you try to you try to tear each other down. So I'm. Let's just jump here to um, kind of the, because you went straight to how we deal with other people. And that's, that's definitely part of the equation. How are we going to respond to other people in our sense of alienation to try to interact with them? And it's almost always going to be oppression. That, again, as I, as I talked about earlier in the class with the curse on Eve, that 
part of the curse is this this pollution of the of the marriage relationship where uh, the relationship just devolves into um, raw exercise of authority rather than a flowing, uh, a beautiful experience of union and communion. Um, oppression, are there two P's in oppression or one? That's right? Okay, sorry. Um, there's two? I think, I, th- I think so too. I think there's, yeah. Uh, maybe it's an American versus British spelling thing. I don't know. Um, compassion? Compassion? Not yet. Um, so again, employer-employee relationship, like the, the, the worst version of that is, is master and slave, right? It just becomes owning someone. Um, we're going to look at some passages about how oppression, especially in Exodus, the people of God, what situation do they find themselves in? They're oppressed by Pharaoh. Um, that's their fundamental relationship to a, a false king. Uh, Pharaoh's uh, really kind of the first big mega king that we, we meet in the Bible, um, and his, the way he rules his subjects is through oppression, not, um, not in communion and fellowship like Adam was made to, to interact with other humans. Okay, so um, I'm just going to jump, jump straight to it. Selfish, selfish ambition. Probably, there could be a different word. Not ambition, ambition. Um, ambition. Um, There could be other words that might be more concise, but I think this is this idea of you have ambition, and ambition is not inherently wrong. It's this kind of desire for something greater, but it all, this, the selfish ambition is just, you know, I have these, this vision, but it's all about me. It's gonna, something I'm going to accomplish in myself. Yes. Right. Well, that kind of I can't do it is kind of like this woeful, like bottom of the barrel situation after the fall. A response to being um, in this disempowered state, un- unable to realize your potential, is kind of the pick yourself by, by your own bootstraps type response. Like, well, I'm just going to will myself to do this thing. I'm just going to muscle through and uh, and grit my teeth and and do it. So again, this, there's. I don't want to reduce your imagination to just these words. I'm just trying to summarize, and we'll, we'll see a much richer idea of this as we look at these biblical texts. Um, guilt. When we have guilt, I mean, what's, a, what's the wrong way to deal with your guilt? Yes. Blame shifting. Good. Yeah. Get very defensive. Right. What about trying to, trying to deal with your guilt? So that's both blame shifting and defensive is kind of pretending the guilt's not there. It's trying to escape. Yeah. So if you're actually going to, without Christ, try to face your guilt, but without the gospel, what's that often look like? You're not blame shifting yet. Yeah. Yeah. Self-justification. Kind of, um, uh, what else? Keep, Keep going. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's on the same same trajectory there of of you know self mutilation or, or trying to harm yourself. I mean, what do you, what's the person trying besides just mere release? Like, what are they trying to do when they're hurting themselves in that sense? It's probably very complicated. Probably can't summarize it concisely. What's that? Pay a price. Yeah, they're trying to. It's almost like some kind of self sacrifice. Something like they're trying to. I, I've I've thought of the word appeasement. Penance, there you go, yeah. And really, appeasement, penance, self-sacrifice, I mean, this is the essence of false religion. This is the idea of I can save myself by, by paying some penalty, some price, and appease it. And we're going to talk about some verses of, I mean, that's why idolatry in the Old Testament is, is not just that idolatry is taking God off his throne, but it's, it's false worship in the sense that it's, it's just trying to appease these lesser deities um, rather than um, deal with guilt at its, at its source. So, so good. And then um, we kind of alluded to this last week that exile, um, 
the sense of homelessness leads people to build these false homes um, where they can try to, these false homes that will serve as the seat or the home base of all these other things, so, so the city. Um, yes? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we, we tend less towards the like aestheticism or uh, or you know, self sacrifice and more towards the I'm a good person therefore mm-hmm. my good outweighs the bad. Yeah. You're kind of appeasing your conscience in one sense, in a sense. I think it in a subtle way, a lot of the self help, um, also like a lot of the health focus that we have. A lot of the stress management, self-care, um, exercise, all these good things, but how they're presented to us, well, here, okay, here's a good example. Snickers commercials, all right? These Snickers commercials where this guy, you know, they're, they're transformed into some ugly monster or like some weird, I think there was one with Richard Simmons, like acting all weird, um, and it's just like, oh, this isn't weird, this is, or this is normal, this is not normal, what's going on? And what's the punchline of those commercials? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You're not you when you're hungry. Right. And so, what is, so, so grab, grab a Snickers and you'll be yourself again. Think about it. What is, I mean, technically speaking, what's happening? You're offering a sacrifice to yourself. Eat, eat the Snickers, satisfy the beast within you, and you'll become tranquil again. You know, it's it's... You're, you're, you're hangry. I just, I just, I, uh, um, I'm just mad at my kids unless I have you know, my protein shake in the middle of the afternoon or something like that. I just need to appease the beast within. Or um, I just need a... a me- mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can add rituals to these things and formalize this, this appeasement. Right, exactly. So uh, it's all around us. Like we're all, we all revert to these things. It's just so subtle. We don't often recognize what we're doing. So great, great discussion. Um, let's jump into the Bible here and, and just see where these themes emerge. And so let's start with the um, story of Cain, Genesis 1, 4, 1 through 17. Who wants to read? Uh... All right, Stephen. Genesis 4, 1 through 17. Conceived. She conceived and bore Cain. Yep. Good. <laughs> 
Great. Let's stop there. I want to talk about some things in there. So, so Cain and Abel are born, and both of them offer offerings to God. They have different offerings, and God has regard for Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering. And Cain is angry about the fact that the Lord did not accept his offering. I don't want to get into why the Lord might not have um, accepted Cain's offering. It's a very interesting question. Um, but the point I want to make is, what does the fact that Cain is angry that God didn't accept his offering tell us about Cain's mindset? Selfish? Prideful? Right. I mean, the God of the universe, the first recorded sacrifice we have in the Bible, and Cain's literally saying, well, God, this should be good enough. Like, what's going on? You know, I mean, just, just the... Rather than, oh, hey, God, whatever you say, I'll, I'll do whatever you, you say. I mean, just completely different mindset uh, from, from what he should be having. Yeah, and so we see, we see pride. We see this idea of, I want to appease God on my own terms. Um, and uh, we're off to a, a very rocky start. Another thing I want you to see here is um, there's a parallel here between uh, sin with Cain and the serpent with um, Eve. So Eve listened to the serpent, and Adam as well, by default. Um, and Cain here, the image is, sin is like an animal crouching at Cain's door. And so Cain is also presented with this uh, choice of, am I going to listen to a, a creaturely lesser you know, more sinister voice, or am I going to listen to God's voice? And you know the rest of the story, right? What, is, what does he do? He listens to, to the voice of, of sin, if you will, and kills his brother. Um, and so skipping ahead to the story, I think most of you know the story. Um, verse, uh, Cain gets cursed because he killed his brother. And verse 10 And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Uh, So the curse is is compounded for Cain. Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground. And from your face I shall be hidden, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Okay. Why did I read all that? So, what's God's curse on, on Cain? In a nutshell. Banishment. More exile. Yeah, it's like he was already, they're already out of the garden, and it's even more beyond the garden. So also exile, but also what's Cain supposed to be doing? What does God say you're going to do or, or be? Fruitless. Yeah, fruitless. Right. Yeah, the ground's not going to bear anything for you. Um, what else? There's one more thing. No one else can kill him. Where's he going to be located? East? What's he going to be doing? Wandering. He's going to be a wanderer. Right. He's going to be a wanderer throughout the earth. How does he respond, though, to that banishment? What does he do instead of wander? He builds a city. So... Even in his punishment, God's been gracious to him. <laughs> and yet, his response to God's gracious punishment is, is further defiance of building a city when he's supposed to be a wanderer. So, so the city here, from the get-go, emerges as this act of defiance. This act of defiance against, against God's um, curse which kind of, again, is, is, is really a summation of what we're talking about, is God's cursed, God's given a punishment. The biblical literature is going to build towards a posture of humility and repentance in the face of our fallen state. 
But from the get-go, Cain is presented as the archetype, if you will. I don't want to use archetype. That's a loaded term. Um, as the uh, epitome, if you will, of, of just proud defiance of, of God's, God's punishment. And you can't even see it in just his expression. Oh, this is too hard for me to bear. I can't handle it. You know, it's just there's this attitude of God's not fair. I'm gonna, you know, give him the middle finger, and uh, and build this city. So that's that's Cain. So let's go to the rest of this chapter. Um, who wants to read uh, verse 18 through 24? Go for it. Great. Um, and you got a little preview of what I'm about to say from Joel's sermon on Sunday night. Hopefully you guys were able to uh, go Sunday. Uh, um, Joel, uh, if you listen to the sermon, he said uh, Cain received... Or, or, Lamech is the seventh generation from Cain. And Joel kind of had this great uh, turn of phrase. Lamech is Cain to the seventh power, so to speak. Like, he's the culmination of, of this proud, selfish ambition, appeasement, oppressive uh, people. Another uh, commentator on this almost calls this genealogy like the anti-genealogy. I mean, it's just, it's a descent into death. Um, and um, I, I also really just, as a, as a shameless plug for, for Joel, Joel's preaching through... Uh, Genesis in Columbus, and uh, I'd really uh, commend uh, those sermons to you. Some of what I'm saying today is, is from his, his sermon on, uh, on Cain. And so, like, how would you describe this poem that Lamech is writing? Um, again, I know it's not all of us are poets. Maybe we're not great at kind of getting to the gist of what a, what a poem's about, um, but what's, how does it strike you, what's, um, what's it telling us? What's, what's he fundamentally doing in this poem? This, this, uh, so the poem is uh, verse 23 and 24. Yeah. Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemex is 77-fold. What is this? It's a rap song. Oh, wow. Okay. What, 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 do, you, what do you mean by that? It's got attitude. Um, boastful. Very boastful, yes. Yeah. Yeah, you get these... Um, you know, these old warrior movies. I don't... Not, not one's coming to mind, but it's like there's always some guy. It's like he's got these tax on this weapon of his. And it's like, what are those little lines represent? Oh, that's how many people I've killed. Or uh, um, Black, Black Panther, um, the, the evil, evil guy in there, he's got all these tattoos over his body, and each tattoo, I, I think, represents a person he's killed, right? Yeah. Um, so he's, he's boasting of killing, and, and also he's, he's boasting... In direct defiance of, like, how is he boasting? He's using, in one sense, the, the blessing of, that God gave to Cain, that he, 
he would be avenged sevenfold if, if someone were to harm him. Um, and he's throwing it right back in God's face and saying, uh, just, just extreme arrogance, extreme arrogance uh, that we see here. Also, more violence, more violence. This is a very important theme as we go into the flood, um, that this isn't just pride that's in your head with a supercharged ego. This is, this is pride that leads you to, to kill young people. He kills a young man uh, just for striking him. So it's, it's cruel, it's, it's evil, um, it's oppressive, uh, it's, it's a bad trajectory. So this is set up, and then um, just listen to Joel's sermon in terms of the introduction to the antidote, right? That Seth. Seth is after this, uh, you know, wow, where, where do we go from here? Uh, we see God's promise to bring a snake crusher uh, through the seed of the woman. Uh, that theme picks up here in the promise, um, well, the, the fulfillment of the promise that Seth is, that uh, even though Cain failed, even though Abel was killed, the Lord is going to bring about uh, the seed of the woman who will get us back on the right track. So I really, if you missed that sermon last Sunday evening, I, I commend that to you. Okay, let's uh, jump to so Genesis 6. We'll skip this. Uh, Genesis 6 is violence fills the earth, right? This just, the cycle of violence just continues till it's really completely out of control. And um, so out of control that the solution is God has to wipe out the entire humanity except the one family that is still seeking his face and still um, blameless in his sight. And so the flood, we'll, t- we'll talk about the flood uh, next week and uh, the covenant that God makes with Noah as kind of a creation 2.0 and a dominion 2.0. Um, but the response of the flood by God is, is in response to this further descent that's previewed by Lamech into uh, this proud state of, uh, that culminates in just violence over the whole earth. Um, Genesis 11 uh, continues this, this city theme and pride in a collective sense. So let's, let's read uh, Genesis 11, um, the Tower of Babel. Who would like to uh, read that? Someone who hasn't read yet. Jacob. Yeah, if you're going to volunteer, you've got to like... Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm ready now. Got to go. You're good. Excellent. All right, so why are the people building this city in the land of Shinar? What's their stated purpose? Statement against God, right, right. They're, they're, this is an act of defiance against God, and how so? What do they say uh, they're doing? Make a name for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, that's pride. That's pride. That's selfish ambition. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And also, what's, what's part of the, of the image of God project, especially having to do with potential? Um, again, what's the scope uh, of God's extension of the image of, man, image of God in man throughout 
the earth? Like, how, how far are people supposed to, to go in fulfilling that, geographically speaking? All the earth. All the earth. But what do we see here instead? They want to pool their resources and stay in one spot. And, uh, um, again, the, the premise on that is like, well, if we obey God and we fill the earth and we go about his plan, we're, well, there's not going to be a name for ourselves. We're going we're gonna to have to... That's a, that's a big project. It's going to take a long time. I don't want to wait for the fulfillment of, of God's plan. I'm going I'm to hijack that, and we're going we're gonna to supercharge uh, this power project, and we're going to do it ourselves. So, um, also, you know, what, what's God's response to this? He kind of, I mean, just again, God's ways are never thwarted. So, so what's the solution that God gives, and what, what happens? Use their language, right? They they lose the power in one. I mean, language up to this point has been, you know, Adam naming the animals, Adam naming Eve, Eve naming her children. You know, I mean, this this God speaking the world into existence. It's like man loses loses something. God's not going to let the power of speech be used for anti God purposes anymore. I mean, it's it's a very it's a very profound indictment. Um, and um, and then geographically again, what what happens after this? Disbursement, right? So God's going to accomplish his his goal for the world, right? He's going to he, his will is not going to be thwarted. He's going to fill the earth uh, with the image of of himself, uh, whether we like it or not. And so uh, he you see him breaking the power of the city, so to speak, uh, breaking uh, humbling humbling mankind, and this is. This is what we need God to do. This is, this is what God um, putting men in their place for his higher purposes starts to look like. It's God, when we see man humbled, um, it's judgment, but it's also a good thing. So hold, hold that thought in your head. We're going to come back to that in five minutes. Okay, Deuteronomy 18 and 17. These are additional examples of, of symbols of... Um, and how the Bible talks about this fake dominion project. So turn to Deuteronomy 18 first. And this kind of gets into the mad scientist type caricature of a villain here. Um, might be a little bit of a stretch, but I think, I think you'll get where I'm going here. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 18. Someone who hasn't read yet. Yes. Keep going. To through verse eighteen. Great. So this is, this is a summary of all, really all forms of false knowledge. False knowledge, false hearing from God, you know, this idea of appeasement. Um, so we have necromancers and sorcerers and omens and mediums and charmers, those who inquire of the dead. Um, you have you have you know perverted ways of trying to gain wisdom and understanding through all sorts of abominable ways. And what's contrasted? It's it's unfortunate that the ESV and this happens a lot of time. You have section headings that break up flows of thought. But I really think this promise of 
God's going to raise up a prophet for you is just the complete antithesis of these abominable, you know, the this, this sorcery and inquiring of the dead. Instead of listening to the dead and your sorcerers and your necromancers, who are you supposed to listen to? What's the answer? The word. And specifically, a prophet that God's going to raise up who speaks the word. And so, um, but, but it shows you um, that the people, apart from the true prophet, apart from the word of God, it just devolves into all sorts of foolish and vain um, ways of trying to, to get at knowledge. And uh, you also, now, I don't think any one of us here has consulted a necromancer or a sorcerer. Um, maybe you know someone who has. Um, it's, it's, it's more common nowadays than, than I think we, we, we realize. But, I mean, how, how might the spirit of the prohibitions being talked about in this chapter apply even in a, even in a day where people aren't as you know, superstitious? Yes. Fair enough, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so these, these things are alive and well, yeah, in certain parts of the world. I, I, I'll just throw something out for you guys to think about. I, I think... Even if we don't have those practices in the United States, the spirit of that is still present, I would argue, in our hyper-reliance on probabilistic thinking and statistical thinking. Statistics does not tell you any facts. It tells you... Okay, sorry. <laughs> the, the, actu- the actuary is clapping his hands. Um, um, it tells you probabilities. It's... Um, uh, Estimates of probabilities, yes, with a degree of certainty. And yet we treat these, these probabilistic analyses as if they're facts. Now, again, there's a common grace sense in which probability allows us to exercise good judgment and wisdom. I don't want to, like, there's a way to use science in the right way. But if you're, if you're going to base, like, every decision in your life, you can't make the decision unless statistically it makes sense. Like, that will lead you to a life when the true prophet of God comes and speaks to you through his word, you will not listen to him. <laughs> because a lot of times God calls you to do something that's, probabilistically speaking, uh, might be foolish in the world's eyes. Um, so I just think, think about that. Think of this week of just the sources of knowledge that we come to that um, um, are not overtly, maybe, uh, anti-God or, or pagan in that sense, but, but betray this, I'm trusting the things of the earth. I'm trusting only in human wisdom. Um, instead, it's it's a it's a false it's a fake dominion mindset. Okay, the last thing, really quickly here, we're almost out of time. In chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, just a couple paragraphs over, it talks about what Israel's king is supposed to be like, and Israel's king is kind of presented the opposite of Lamech, the opposite of Pharaoh, the opposite of these fake dominion type kings, and we see it in in a couple of crucial respects. Um, verse 16. Um, he must not acquire many horses for himself. Many horses. Horses in that day were like tanks. They were the symbol of military prowess, military sophistication. And um, all of Israel's enemies had chariots and horses. And yet God's telling his, his king is not going to rule primarily through human, human strength and horses. And you look in the history of the kings and first kings, second kings, and chronicles. When the Israelite kings start to get lots of horses, things start to go bad, right? And we see also in our psalms. You know, some um, uh, some may trust in horses, some may trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So not no horses. Um, instead, uh, he's to uh, copy God's word. He's supposed to, he's supposed to be a king who follows Torah, a king whose Torah is on his heart and who seeks, seeks the word of God. So, um, just in the antithesis of, of what God's king is, is to be, we see 
this, this fake Dominion project. Okay. Lastly, just in summary, um, we're out of time, but I want to leave you going into worship with this, with this thought of, uh, just again, anticipation of how does Christ um, deal with all of this. And we see this just powerfully represented and prophesied in Micah chapter 5. So turn to Micah chapter 5. Think of all the, uh, these images of fake dominion, of horses, of, of cities, of sorcery, of, of um, all these ways that man exalts himself. What's God going to do with that? And so, real quick, Micah 4 and 6, four, Micah 4 and 5, Micah 4 talks about, it shall come to pass in the latter days. So in the last days, when the times of fulfillment come, and then repeatedly throughout these passages, there's the refrain, in that day the Lord will do X. Well, when we get to verse 10 of Micah chapter 5, we see again, in that day. So this is the anticipated hope when Messiah is going to come and deal with all this. What's Messiah going to do? In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land. I will throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand. And you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out the Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So there's a sense in which we hear that verse. And it's like, oh, God's just going to come and be really angry. That is not how you should hear that passage. You should hear that passage as God is tearing down fake dominion. He's tearing down all the sin in your life that is exalting itself up against God as a fake way to deal with your ultimate problems. Right? And it's just, it should just be a... These, when God comes and cleanses His people, right, judgment begins with the house of Israel. When God comes to Israel and takes away their cities and takes away their horses and takes away their chariots... It is a mercy. He is saving them from fake dominion, saving them from all these ways that they're trying to save themselves. So, um, please hear that with faith this morning. And uh, is God humbling you in your life? Is God making you feel very weak? Is God filling you with all sorts of issues that force you to reject all worldly solutions? God is coming in these last days, to have mercy upon you. So don't resist him, but humble yourself uh, before his mighty hand, and he will raise you up. Yes? I thought... Uh-oh. Okay. He how is in here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who purchased and I will give to each of the tree of life, which is in the, the paradise of God, through the middle of the street of the city, also all nature said of the river, the tree of life, when, when the river kind of fruit. That's that's really good. Um, So Stephen was reading from Revelation, so and he he gets it that that all of this is leading us back to the garden, the tree of life, 
to receive God's, to God's blessing. Um, very good, Stephen. That, those are precisely the connections that we should be making as we, uh, as we think about these things. So yes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessing. Please save us from fake dominion. Save us from our, the salvation that we would try to bring about by our own hands and our pride and arrogance. Uh, help us to live with one another in love, not oppression. Uh, lead us ultimately to Zion, to your holy hill, uh, away from our, our um, attempts to save ourselves. Lead us to your presence. Go with us now in this hour of worship, and uh, may you receive our offerings uh, in Christ's name. We ask these things in his name. Amen. What's that? What's that? Yeah, that's right. Those are, you're seeing all those connections, all those images. It's, that's right. That's precisely it.